Welcome to the Stott Legacy. He is within us. He shares in the pain and identifies him. We must not ask God to change his timetable because we're getting a little bit impatient. Or think of the beginning of the first letter of Peter when he says that we were chosen by God the Father. It is 2021 and this marks the centenary of the birth of John Stott in central London. He holds a unique place in 20th century church history, not just because of his impact on the British church, but because of his impact on the global church. So throughout the year, we will meet a broad range of people from across the world, both women and men who knew him and worked closely with him, as well as those who never met him, but were nevertheless shaped by his preaching and writing. My name is Mark Mennell, and I hope you will join me as we explore inspiration, challenges, and insights from the life of Uncle John. In this episode, I sat down with Gail and Jorge Atiencia. They were speaking from Ecuador, which is Jorge's home country, and where they'd spent some of the lockdown staying with relatives. Gail is in fact from Canada originally, and they got married after meeting when Jorge trained at Regents College Vancouver. But for many years now, they've lived in Colombia and were involved in Langham preaching from the very, very start and were involved in helping to set up the work across Latin America. But I started by asking Gail for her best memory of Uncle John or Tio Juan, as he was known in the Hispanic world. I'm not sure whether it was the first time, but it's the most clear memory I have. As a family, a young family, we were visiting London and our kids were quite small. I think Christopher would have been six or seven and well, maybe eight and Daniela two or three. And we decided to go to All Souls and hear John Stott preach. And afterwards, while we were milling around in the coffee hour downstairs in the basement, he came over and greeted us. He remembered us. And to our surprise, he invited us to have lunch with him in a nearby restaurant, hmm. which we did. And I remember being very impressed when he shared with us how lonely Sundays were for him. Huh. Huh. As he watched his parishioners going home with their families to have lunch. The second thing that impressed us after lunch, he took us back to his, his living space, his home. And we were very impressed with how tiny and simple. And pokey it is with those stairs. <laughs> it was. Up the stairs to the first floor, and we passed a bedroom and a bathroom, and up some more stairs to where the study was full of books, of course, and a tiny kitchen. Mm. And I think that was it. And the third thing that impressed me was how quietly comfortable he was with our young children. Mm. They were, of course, quite used to milling around with theologians. So that wasn't <laughs> as And discussing him. things with them? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they have never forgotten that visit to Uncle John. It's striking, isn't it? Because his singleness and his dedication came uh, at quite the cost, didn't it? Quite a cost, Yes. Hmm. Yeah, we really felt that. You were in Colombia at that point? Yes. Yes, we were. That's where I met uh, him 
for the very first time, 1972, he came with uh, Dr. René Padilla to a number of talks at the InterVarsity group we worked with. So my connection with uh, John was as far as 72. Since then, I have been in a number of occasions where we had something to do with, uh, I had something to do with him. I used to call him Reverend. <laughs> and at one point, uh, he said, Jorge, you're my friend. Please don't call me Reverend anymore. You can call me John or Uncle John, but don't call me Reverend. So I said, sure, Reverend, I'll do that. <laughs> <laughs> and he laughed. One day while we were working for IFES, International Fellowship of Evangelical Students, we got a response to our prayer letter. And in that response, we noticed that he was very, very interested that I have it in Cuba. Uh-huh. He asked me a number of questions about uh, uh, Cuba. I perceived a kind of interest uh, beyond just uh, feed me with uh, important information. I said to Gail, could it be that he's really fishing for an invitation to go to Cuba? I mean, but Scott would not do that. I mean... <laughs> I talked to Cuban leaders of intervarsity and I said, I have not written or said anything. I want, would you be interested if we extend him an invitation to come to Cuba? They were so excited. I bet they were. That's right. They couldn't believe that was possible. I mean, his uh, agenda was so full. And so they prayed and I write him and to my surprise, he did not delay in answering <laughs> back. Jorge, you have two weeks from me. Wow. One week for ministry and one week for rest. I want to introduce you to the best and only biblical sport. I said, which, which I know where one? this is going. <laughs> Do you know? <laughs> if you know anything about John Stott, or perhaps you've listened to one or two of the episodes of this podcast before, then you don't need me to tell you what John regarded as the biblical sport, namely bird watching, his lifelong passion. This trip of John Stott's to Cuba, though, in the late 80s, was highly significant for the student movement in Cuba as part of IFES, and was also highly significant for Jorge personally. But he told me that they nearly didn't make it into the country at all because immigration officials stopped them at the airport in Havana, curious as to what connected them, the fact that John had come from Europe, Jorge from Colombia, and after John had politely explained that they were coming to give Bible talks, they were informed that they were going to be put on the next flight home. And Jorge just didn't know what John was going to do next. Very quietly, he tells me, Jorge, I will try to use some of the Apostle Paul's strategy here. <laughs> Translate this for me. 
with a kind of diplomacy that, I mean, that was only John's. He was amazing. He conveyed to them how respectful he was of local authorities, that uh, he, he respects what they have decided and uh, he will just uh, proceed in that regard. Nevertheless, he wanted them to know that next day upon arrival, he will get in touch with some parliament members to let them know that a British citizen was not allowed to come into the country. At that moment, they got so scared. The fellows tell me, hey, 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 ask him to come down. We will go back to our office and consult with our authorities. So they took a lot of time. And so John and I were talking and said, Jorge, yes, once in a while, I have to use and to pull some strings for the <laughs> sake of well, They came back and, and another person came, a superior to the ones before. First of all, express apologies to the well-known theologian. They were not well informed, especially by this Colombian who has not informed them properly. <laughs> so it's all your fault. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that such a figure was coming into the country. What an honor to have him in Cuba. And he was, of course, allowed to come in. The only thing they wanted to know in advance is the outlines of the talks and restriction be put that he could only teach in two cities. That's it. First experience with John at the airport. Brilliant. Um, so, uh, Jorge, were you um, his interpreter or did he speak any Spanish? No, not at all. I was his interpreter. The, the whole time. Of course, at that moment, they say, only the theologian is welcome. The translator is not welcome. And so I said, no problem. I will also respect, but I, I, I didn't have any strings to pull. <laughs> I said, the only thing is, the Cuban government has to provide a 24-hour translator for the theologian. <laughs> At that point, they said, well, 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 wait. We will go and talk to our authorities and come back to you. So they came back and said, oh, of course, the translator is also, <laughs> is also welcome. And so the two of us were welcoming to the country. Wonderful. One day at the house, at the place where we were having the conference, very typical of Cuba, even today, the lights went off, electricity was cut off. We were staying 70 people in that place and uh, the leaders were doing cooking and everything for 70 people. No electricity means no water. And you can imagine the pile of dishes that were left on the counter of 
70 people eating, waiting for electricity to come back next day. Suddenly at 5.30 in the morning, next day, I had noise in the kitchen. So I got up and went and oh, surprise, the reverend has got up and was washing the dishes by himself with such a joy and humility. I said, wait a minute, John. No way you're doing this. Yes, I am doing, uh, not only that, but come and join me. <laughs> <laughs> the, two us, the two of us will do it. <laughs> Oh, brother, what an impact. Mm -hmm. It was preaching. I mean, it was uh, alive preaching. Mm. Embodied. That's right. One and what an example to all the professionals and student leaders. It mm. was amazing. Mm. It was Easter week. And Resurrection Sunday uh, came, and the leaders of the group um, asked to have a word with me. And they say, Jorge, the government has sent some, some people to spy. Uh, we already identify some that we don't know, but they have cameras, and we know they have tape recorders. So do please talk to John and ask him, be cautious in terms of language and political connections, and uh, uh, not to use words that could jeopardize uh, your uh, preaching and also our situation. Uh, I said, like, uh, what words? Like, ask him to avoid terminology like oppression, uh, that type of. So I went to his room. Uh, he was praying, getting ready. I said, uh, John, actually, the leaders want, want me to talk to you. I said, what about Jorge? I said, brother, they are asking for you to be a little bit cautious with the, the terminology you use. It's Resurrection Sunday. Uh, just take it easy. Uh, soften some things a little bit, I said. And he said, Jorge, I am going to expound on the power of the resurrection. The moment I hear the word power, then I got nervous because <laughs> those words already convey some political. Mm. <laughs> he said, I will expound on the power and the hope of the resurrection. If because we preach the gospel, you and I, end up in jail, we have to go to jail. Of course, I am thinking in my mind, I said, well, go ahead. You're single. Well, I am married. I have two kids. I 
telling these things to myself, please go to jail anytime you want. I kept to to take care of my family. And suddenly I realized, okay, I am the one who is translating. So I can do the the, the soft. (laughs) Actually, you have the power, don't you? That's correct. It's like he was already inside my mind and said, and I want to ask you something. Don't ever change anything I say. I think he was already suspicious of what was going on. Don't change what I say. Tell you something, Mark. I remember the power of that exposition, Mm. the power and hope of the resurrection for people who have been oppressed mm. and no hope at all. People were in tears and I have never seen him coming close to being a Pentecostal preacher. Wow. He had to come to Cuba for that. <laughs> That's correct. That is correct. It's unbelievable how scripture and context together can shape your preaching he was I mean anointed by the Holy Spirit then the week was over and so he had already done uh, I mean he was very careful planning his holidays he had already done a little bit of research and localized the hotel we needed to go so we arranged the leaders uh, to take us there. And I was a little bit intimidated uh, in the sense, I mean, how do you spend a holiday with such a... Such a reverend. A reverend, that's right, with the reverend. So at dinner, uh, he said, Jorge, I hope you don't mind if we order... Uh, our bottle of wine to enjoy the dinner. Uh, I said, of course, no, brother, what a privilege. My goodness. I said, "Um, I really need to talk to you something. I said, it will help me if you would tell me in advance. Jorge, I would prefer not to talk about these things. So I would not offend you or build false expectations, and that would be fine with me. I had already written in my notebook the questions I wanted to ask him. So he said, Jorge, you're my friend. You can ask me whatever you want. The only thing I am going to ask you is, what I tell you, write it down and send it, that material to my biographer, uh, Timothy, Timothy Dudley Smith, to feed him with the information I am going to give to you. I said, hey, hey wait a minute, wait a minute. <laughs> what do you mean? Your biographer probably knows about everything I am going to ask you. He said, no, Jorge, we British people. People are too reserved. We, we won't ask personal questions. I said, no way. 
Say yes, Jorge. Please, you write that down and send that information to him. So I said, and so he said, okay, what do you want to talk about? And I said, I would like to know how have you suffered in life? He spoke almost for three consecutive hours. He began saying this, Jorge, you are the very first person who asks me this question. And I am so glad to share it because the majority of people think that I, I have no idea what suffering is. Mm. I mean, my admiration for this mm. servant of God and, and the suffering one, one is not even aware of. And so I, I, I wrote a number of pages and sent the, them to his biographer and was able to include a couple of paragraphs at the end of the book. He got so excited of talking and having the space, mm -hmm. uh, the question asked that uh, we order a second bottle of wine. <laughs> now, that is the most revealing thing you've said all afternoon. <laughs> but I, I was in the presence of some someone who was human. Yes. You know, it, it, that touched me very, very deeply. And then finally, the reward. The reward came. I can the reward Jorge was speaking about was spotting a very rare bird. John had spent years long to track down two particular species in his life. One lived in the Arctic, the snowy owl, the other in only two places in the world, of which one was, of course, Cuba. This was the minute bee hummingbird. John had prayed for 25 years to be able to track it down. And John told Jorge that his bird book said the best chance of seeing the hummingbird was between four and six in the morning. But Jorge was feeling ill. He was sick in bed and really not interested in getting up so early. He woke, I think at 4.30, was ready. He went there at five and waited and waited and waited. He was praying in front of the bush. Suddenly he hears this incredible noise because the smallest is the size of an inch. Hmm. And the flipping of the wings is so strong. He could not believe it came, I mean, 20 centimeters from his nose. Wow. And the Lord telling him, my servant, enjoy my creation. He got so excited. He came afterwards to my room and said, Jorge, I don't care how sick you are. I have already prayed the Lord to allow you to see this beautiful creature. I will wrap you in blankets and if I had to carry, I'll carry you. But you and I have to see it together. We went there, we sat down, and sure enough, came back in front of the two of us. And then he said, Jorge, now let's praise the Lord. Mm -hmm. The reward 
to his servants. That's beautiful. Thank you so much, both of you. Um, those are very precious. We'll pause the conversation there for a moment, but we will return to it. But I want to introduce for our book review an old friend of mine, Ros Clark, who is the Associate Director of the Church Society here in the UK. She has studied theology to a high level. She's done a PhD on interpretations of the book, The Song of Songs. But here she's just going to reflect briefly on why Don's book, The Cross of Christ, a book which many regard as John Stott's masterpiece, really, why this book has meant so much to her. In 1991, I uh, went up to university. I'd been a Christian for just about a year. I'd had almost no teaching. I didn't really understand uh, anything about the gospel. Uh, I just knew it was true and God loved me. I didn't really understand uh, why Christ's death on the cross was significant at all. And at some point in the next couple of years, I came across the cross of Christ. And I was absolutely blown away by it. Um, I loved John Stott's uh, thoroughness, uh, his logic, the way that he thought about the questions from different perspectives, the way that he approached the cross. Every chapter I thought, okay, now I understand it. That's sort of all I need to know. And then every chapter there would just be more and more and more. In the 30 years or so that I've had the book, I've read it multiple times. And every time I read the book, I've just gained more and more from it, more wonderful insights into what uh, Christ was accomplishing as he died on the cross, more heartwarming truths as I think about what that uh, salvation has meant for me, more clarity into the underlying theology of what God was doing. But I think the thing that struck me most is the pastoral heart uh, of John Stott as he's writing this book. It is never for him a merely academic exercise. This is not an intellectual book. And the thing I love most about it, actually, is the final part of the book where he talks about living under the cross. And he explains how Christ's death on the cross for us applies to the lived experience of the Christian as we think about ourselves in community, as we understand who we are, as we follow Christ's example of self-giving, as we apply it to those uh, most difficult of all commands, to love our enemies, and as we try to make sense of the suffering that we experience in this world while we look on towards glory. For John Stott, clearly Christ's death pervades the whole of scripture. The Bible as a whole teaches us the core of our faith, the salvation won for us by Christ as he died on that cross. I'm fascinated by the fact that there is a sort of cultural disconnect, isn't there? Because here you have this rather proper single Englishman who lived his whole life in central London. And I'm just fascinated by the fact that he had quite the impact in Latin America, um, which was very unlikely, wasn't it? And yet you mentioned Rene Padilla, who recently passed away, um, and Samuel Escobar and others were very uh, influenced by him and influenced him. 
I mean, how did those connections in Latin America come about, do you think? And why did he make such an impact? I would say, uh, first of all, uh, John was always considered part of the IFES family. Right. The International Fellowship of Evangelicals. And so uh, that was a natural connection there. Two, I think uh, Samuel and René, especially those two, had a high view of Bible exposition. And they found that John's thought was unparalleled, especially, especially the, the clarity of, uh, of uh, the exposition, uh, the freshness and the, the logic, uh, the depth. And so I think especially these two, I would say, were very, very much influenced by John Stott. And both of them, uh, I mean, developed a very profound relationship. And through them, René and Samuel, and John Stott was able to come and be in different settings in Latin America. So they were his bridge in a way. That's correct. That's correct. And then when the books began to be translated, beginning with the first one, basic Christianity. Wow, the richness for the majority of the intervarsity movements in Latin America, I mean, was incredible. And so I would say those are expressions, uh, would you say? Uh, I think there's something else that you implied in your anecdote uh, when he began his diplomatic response and that was his active and obvious respect for other cultures mm. and for leaders of Christian movements and churches um, who were not white Anglo-Saxon Protestants. That's correct. And he right. would um, affirm them and give them as examples and that's contagious. Right. So the reciprocity uh, was also in the fact that uh, René and Samuel uh, were able to emphasize to Stott the importance of the context and the social reality uh, and the effort these two made in order to appreciate theology of liberation but try to mm. articulate liberation from a biblical perspective. And that really fascinated John Stott. Mm. And that had a profound impact in 74 at the Lausanne conference, didn't it? And, and after, because I guess without John, many others around the global church wouldn't have really heard of them or, or come across That's what they were correct. saying. Uh, and I would say that relationship and deepens in 74 at the Lausanne, at the Lausanne conference. So you've, um, I mean, you've been living in Colombia for many years, even though Ecuador is your home and Canada originally, Gail, your home. But you've traveled around Latin America. Have you seen different ways in which that legacy has spread out? Definitely so. I would say, first of all, through literature. The books he wrote, I think there are two that were 
made a significant contribution to the IFES movements and beyond. The cross of Christ, Samuel Escobar told me once that he thought is the book for him of John Stott. Uh, unparalleled yes. treatment of the cross and uh, for a continent where the Catholic Church has emphasized the, the, the cross so it was very 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 important and the other one was uh, issues uh, right facing Christians today that's right that's right where he builds bridges with other uh, disciplines uh, I would say now uh, at the intervarsity Bible study groups, basic Christianity is still considered the manual of articulating what is a basic Christianity. So the legacy is very much alive. The thing I find amazing about basic Christianity is the thought that those originally were transcripts of talks he gave at university mission weeks um and certainly in a british context you read those and you think wow this was evangelistic if you tried to do that today would wouldn't get anywhere <laughs> that is right for me when when i read that book at the same time at the university i was reading basic marxism huh. And the title of the book was like that, Basic Marxism. <laughs> and then Samuel Escobar came to our group and gave those memorable talks, a dialogue between Christ and Marx. My goodness. Huh. Wow, wow. Was that ever published, those talks? Uh, yes, yes. Uh, he has written that book, uh, Dialogue mm. Between Christ and Marx. Mm. I wish we could talk all day, but um, uh, we must draw things to a close. But I wonder if both of you, you could summarize the impact of Uncle John, Tio Juan, and his ministry on you personally, how you might do that. The way I looked at, at scripture and the text, he marked me in such a way that Almost immediately, I am trying to see point one, point two, point three. <laughs> Introduction and, and application. And they all begin with the same letter. <laughs> <laughs> it's there already, and it's, it comes out spontaneously as I looked at the, at the text. That's one. And the other one is, his confession to me of how he had suffered in mm. life was almost like a training, a training workshop on suffering. And this, this virtue of suffering in silence and bringing the fellowship of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Apostle Paul, mm. the two of them, he was very close to Paul in, in his experience of suffering. Mark uh, made a tremendous impact and left me with a very with a treasure. I think it's 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 hard to pinpoint mm. so many years later uh, a specific influence. I think the influence is is subtle and probably unconscious or semi-conscious. But a couple of things come to mind, and one is 
I can't separate his person in the times that I saw him expound scripture in, they were all student gatherings here in Latin America, his person and his warmth from the scripture. Mm. And sometimes when you, you study or, or give a lecture, it's cold, but he was always warm. Mm. And, and that invited into the warmth of, of what God's saying. And I think the other thing would be the reminder that the depth and, and relevance of scripture is endless. He would always accept to write a book on Romans or Ephesians or Galatians or, or give an exposition on that. And they, there was always something deeper and more to say. Mm. And so the, the faith that, that, that the word is really endlessly infinite reflecting our God. For the prayer request in this episode, please pray for the brand new International Director of Langham Partnership, Tayo Arakawe. He's originally from Nigeria, where he was involved in various ministries, but was most recently on the senior staff of London City Mission here in the UK. He takes over the reins from our first International Director, Chris Wright, just to enable Chris to slow down a bit and focus on specific projects. So please do pray for Tayo and his family, particularly Tayo as he gets to grips with what is a very complicated organization working in over 90 countries or so. We're very excited to have him on board and look forward to working with his leadership in the coming months and years. You've been listening to The Stop Legacy with me, Mark Mennell. Thank you very much for listening. In particular, I want to thank Vic Marseille, my colleague uh, who works with Langham Partnership UK and Ireland. She has been slogging away in the background, working very hard, putting all the ingredients to these episodes together, editing and polishing and producing a first-class job. If you want to find out more about uh, Langham Partnership, you can go to langham.org, that is L-A-N-G-H-A-M.org. Also, if you want to find out more about John Stott himself and anything that's happening for this centenary year, then go to the website johnstott, all one word, .org. And on that site, you'll find a blog for this podcast with links and photographs for each episode. That's johnstott.org forward slash podcast. Until next time, goodbye.